everyone, and uh, welcome back to another uh, one in our round of video podcasts. Um, today we're back again here with the usual cast. Bettina, hi, how are you going? Um, hi, and there's I'm also good. Lucas, even though he's without Hello. a camera today, I'm but that here. doesn't really matter. <laughs> I still hear his lovely voice. And there is again our dear friend and colleague uh, Katrin Altans from um, Dusseldorf University and University of Duisburg Essen. Glad to have you back with us, Katrin. How are you going? Fine, thank you. Well, cool. in Sydney right now, right? Sure. <laughs> we all wish we were. Um, well, today we're discussing um, an Australian classic. Um, I think it's not a too far stretch of the imagination if I suggest that Picnic at Hanging Rock is probably one of the most Australian iconic pieces of literature, film, if you will. It certainly has its place in Australian film history, the film adaptation of, of the novel, that is. Um, and we are kind of discussing it today um, and, and see how we fare and uh, how we go. Basically, um, Katrin, you being the expert on Australian Gothic, anyway, I'm not going to put you on the spotlight right here, but um, just open the floor. <laughs> yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful... <laughs> and put you on the spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> So actually, I'm very happy to be here to discuss Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is an all-time favorite of mine, but, but basically the movie is, because I fell in love with that movie when I was like 12 years old or something like that. And um, yes, I, I've always loved the, um, the whole atmosphere about it, which is not a, not a horror atmosphere, but more or less a um, mystic atmosphere. And I mean, when you're about to become a teenager, um, this kind of um, exotic mysticism because it's set in Australia and it's set in 1900. Um, yeah, just carries you away. And that's why I fell in love with it. And, and for me, Picnic at Hanging Rock always is the movie instead of the novel. Mm. Surprisingly so. I think Interesting. Yeah, I think it's maybe not that surprising since I read somewhere that the novel wasn't even that well known until the movie was made. So I think lots of people probably feel the same way. And I think it's interesting that you encountered it when you were so young, like on the verge of becoming a teenager, because I think that that probably resonates with the story as well, right? Because this is about very young girls who do probably experience the troubles of, of being a teenager in some ways. I think that's one of the themes, I, I would say. Why do we think that the movie is kind of what made it popular? Is it a failing of the book? Is it a failing of marketing? Why, why is it that people, their attention in general has been drawn to Picnic at Hanging Rock, not as uh, a book? I have a feeling that maybe, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a qualified answer. I'm, I'm just um, speculating here right off the top of my head, but maybe the, it's, it's the case with... Um, like, for example, other favorite, favorite uh, famous movies that have um, brought books back um, to the spotlight, like Lord of the, uh, Lord of the Rings, for instance. Um, a series of books that have been forgotten for many decades. Well, not exactly forgotten, but certainly kind of, you know, dwindled away from public attention. Tina, I know that you're, you're an expert in the field, so you'll probably, you know... Um, um, well, it depends on, on one, who but... you're talking to. Like, fantasy nerds yeah. would probably... Uh, basically kill you for saying that <laughs> because I don't think it ever went away for them ever. I mean, I mean talking talking mainstream public mainstream, you know yeah. um, popular culture attention it's always been there and it's always been around with with connoisseurs of the field and um 
so I'm not suggesting that. I'm just talking about, you know, public, you know, um, Fair enough. Public, um, culture attention, um, like so many others. Um, and maybe Nick at Hanging Rock is no exception. Out of a sudden, um, somebody decides, hey, this might make for an actually really good movie. Um, the, I kind of like the plot, so let's try a screenplay and um, just rocks. And then people figure out, oh, it's actually based on a novel. So let's go check that one out. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's, it's certainly something to do with the atmosphere as well. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether I've seen the entire movie, but I've certainly seen clips of it. Um, and there's, there's as, as Catherine said, a certain uh, ethereal kind of atmosphere, mystical, and the music, I think, is, is in that area as well. It's also quite uh, mysterious. I actually um, think that it's, a, um, it's because of the director, because of Peter Weir, because it was, mm -hmm. let's say, the times of Peter Weir when it was made um, and the whole story lends itself to to what Peter Weir was doing at that time and so I think that's why it became so popular because Peter Weir was the director and mm. and then it kind of um, yes became a classic for what is now known as the Australian Gothic cinema right. so, and, and then so it's 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 uh, discussed in all the books you find it in all the book as one of the all-time classics in um, Australian Gothic cinema and that it um, I'm not quite sure about whether or not it spawned the genre but um, it's it at least is put together with um, Mad Max and stuff like that mm -hmm. um, uh, lumped together with those movies um, and it has its own place in Australian um, cinema, cinema historiography to put it that way. Mm -hmm. Well since you just mentioned the Australian Gothic I think that's <laughs> probably a good segue uh, because it, it follows it falls into that genre quite well I would say especially with with how the hanging rock looms over the entire story in a certain way um, what do we think about that yeah yeah definitely I mean you've got um, they are out in the bush I mean they are not uh, the Appleyard College is not exactly what you would call um, um, an urban environment but it's mm -hmm. yeah it's close to Melbourne but it's already um kind of in the bush and then they go further into the bush which I have to stress is not uh, the vegetation but um simply the um the, the way how far have well it's remoteness to put it that way mm -hmm. um and there always has been this idea and the fear of going lost in the bush because um there are so many stories of children actually wandering into the bush and never being found again that it has become a classic in folklore, in Australian folklore mm -hmm. and in the national imaginary and um, especially so in the gothic um, fiction, both cinematic and literary of Australia because the bush is something very hostile. Yeah. It is mm -hmm. nature itself which is hostile. It's, it's very interesting you mentioned that, Katrin. It immediately makes me think of uh, an interesting argument that uh, journalist, uh, Indigenous journalist Stan Grant brings up in, in Australia Day, um, published last year. Um, and, and he uses exactly that same argument, and he proposes that within the Australian imaginary um, um, and, and national cultural imagination, the bush always is that place of hostility. It is always that um, always last frontier, that unknown place that is... Um, um, to be for sure, uncharted, unknown, um, and uh, by the same token, dangerous. And um, that only can be countered, you know, through the advance of civilization. So always juxtaposing that, you know, um, that push, that, that um, nondescript place mm -hmm. of evil with 
with the city side or or with the settlement where where, where you're secure where you're safe and then in the bush you have that um that that looming danger which is then also of course associated with with all other uh, sorts of weird things um, it's interesting because he suggests that this is something that has never quite gone away and that australians have so far not been able to to overcome um it's just curious to think about why that is um in a sense. And, and of course, he uses that argument within a larger context of thinking about how people relate to country, how people relate to the place, and how they so far, I mean, white, non-Indigenous Australians don't seem to have been able um, yet to properly relate to the continent they've been inhabiting for the last 200 years. So, and maybe Picnic at Hanging Rock is about that in a way as well. Um, I don't know. And that's maybe why it's still a uh popular and even has seen a very recent adaptation as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we were looking at uh, short horror films with Australian settings as well, and they also portray the bush as hostile. And so that, that I think, supports this argument that this kind of feeling has, has never gone away, not really. Uh, I also find it interesting what you just said, Katrin, about um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, drawing upon real fears of, of children being lost in the bush, potentially drawing on real events, because the novel itself, I'm not sure about the movie, but the novel certainly plays with that idea that it might be real. Um, before the novel proper starts, just, just after uh, a list of the characters is given, uh, there's a little addendum, a little note, whether Picnic at Hanging Rock is fact or fiction, my readers must decide for themselves. As the fateful picnic took place in the year 1900 and all the characters who appear in this book are long since dead, it hardly seems important. So this is Joan Lindsay speaking, but uh, she seems to play it down here, like it's not important, but from what I've read, it has apparently caused lots of discussions about whether this is actually based on a real story and there's been people discussing what really happened to the girls sort of working under the assumption that it is a real event and I think there's even been a book that has been published that is a play on, on the title of, of the unpublished final chapter Secrets at Hanging Rock something like that and that presents a kind of forensic Jack the Ripper type popular history book where the, the author is talking about what could have happened, what, what is the truth behind it. And that very much takes the events of the novel as, as something that really happened. As far as I can remember, the movie has got some caveat as well, some kind mm -hmm. of, um, yeah, I think it's, it's um, some kind of subtitle thing, mm -hmm. uh, which mentions quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. I've had a look again at the novel this morning and uh, there you have some letters and stuff like that. So um, it definitely is playing with the idea of um, it might be a true story. Yes, yes, and absolutely. I mean, and isn't that uh, a feature of gothic fiction in more general terms? I was, I was just going to say nothing can be more gothic than that really, right? If we're thinking of the castle of Otranto, it's, it's found footage. Mm. Uh, if we think of all kinds of gothic horror movies, they are, they're constantly stealing on the idea of based on a true story. Uh, it's something that's so, I, I would say, central to the whole gothic, not just the Australian one. But in mm. this Australian gothic text, we have that kind of staple trope being played out. And I think it, it gets emphasized a lot by the formal conventions of the text, too. We have these letters that are written in a very official kind of seeming way. And we also have the closing 
that also is meant to somehow seem historical or real. And I think mm -hmm. those, those kind of thematic and formal decisions really matter uh, in creating this kind of Australian, I guess, fear or, or Gothic fear. Mm -hmm. And this sort of play with fiction and, and facts that, well, as you said, as we all really said, uh, is typical of the Gothic, but it's also very interesting in context with Picnic at Hanging Rock in particular, because I think it works well together with the fact that the outcome is never really explained, at least not with the, within the published novel. It always remains sort of fluid and unexplained, unstable. And I think both the movie and the new TV series adaptation, they go with this. They don't really take into account the, the final chapter because that explains it and that somehow takes away from the mystery, I would say. Absolutely. Um, I mean, mm. there is this um, this idea of Todorov and the Fantastic, um, which which stays in between um, an, an explanation, a supernatural explanation, mm. or um, what is it? What the other one? The other extreme? Help me out. Uh, the the the. Wait. So so you you have the. Um... The, the reader has to to stay in between and not be able to decide whether or not it's. Um, it is, it's a supernatural um, or whether there's a... a the, exactly. Uh, mm. Look it up, students. Look it up. That's one of your tasks I give you now. <laughs> well, uh, I think the fantasy video might help you with that because I do talk about Todorov there. Um. <laughs> okay, that's, I think... that's exactly this, this reader, the, the hesitation of the reader, which is so yes. uh, important for Todorov at least, that the reader mm -hmm. is not to decide and this is what you have here you have to decide is it real is it not so um explaining it all away um takes this very feature away as you said mm -hmm. and i think that that kind of hesitation is on the level of the characters as well because they don't get an explanation either and they are constantly thinking about what might have happened did these girls run away did they uh, meet foul play uh, was it was it murder or was it something more mysterious uh, that that would go then together with the the image of the bush as hostile and potentially supernaturally hostile and i think in between is a is a very good keyword here because so much about the novel and then also about the tv show is about in between us mm -hmm. uh, right at the start of our podcast uh, you mentioned how appleyard college isn't quite off the city because it's it's remote it's it's a from a distance to to Melbourne but it is still a, an outpost of civilization so it's kind of in the middle as well it's in between uh, the city and the bush and uh, it tries to impose Victorian morals onto the the characters who go there but ultimately fails because they are drawn to Hanging Rock and, and stay there uh, except for Irma who's, who's then found maybe just add another layer to this in-betweenness because, because I think it's an important point also to take into account when it's um, when it's set in terms of time and that is the year 1900 right and we know oh. that only one year later in 1901 Australia became an independent nation right um, so one year um, before federation and the fact that young teenage girls do disappear in the bush and now we need to you know, remember what we just said about the bush as a hostile place and then we have this idea of this this, this old idea and well, 
classic idea of, of Australia as a young nation enshrined in its national anthem, right? Australians, all, uh, all let us rejoice for we're young and free, um, and so forth and so forth. Um, isn't it interesting that just one year before Federation, um, three young teenage girls go into the bush, wander off, disappear to be never found again? Um, and an older mathematics teacher. I mean, don't don't sorry? forget her. The mathematics teacher, she she disappears as well, Greta Mikko. Uh, yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. So, <laughs> all means. And, and so what do we make of that? I mean, isn't that maybe an interesting image to to discuss mm. and unpack? Um, or is that I not mean, significant? I, I, know, I, I mean, think so, considering that obviously Lindsay wrote this with hindsight and mm. chose 1900 as a setting. And it, it is also an in-between year because it's between the 19th and the 20th centuries, mm. right? there so that's that's probably part of it as well uh the tv show adaptation which i just recently rewatched. i don't know have any of you seen it no i sadly not yet it's on uh, my list actually you should watch it i i really enjoyed it um that certainly emphasizes this in-betweenness and i just recently read an article about the queerness of the tv show adaptation in particular and so basically what it argues is that every single character of Picnic at Hanging Rock is queer. And we can see that in the novel, but the TV show really highlights that, that notion. It's the very, very close friendship between the three girls. Uh, there are scenes in the TV show adaptation where they uh, compare their body parts. They, they talk about who's got the, the uh, most beautiful breasts, but also the softest lips. And in order to test who's got the softest lips, what do they do? They kiss. And um, so that's, you know, amping up the queerness quite, <laughs> quite a bit. Um, there's also the way that the TV show adaptation treats uh, Marion. Um, in the TV show adaptation, she's the illegitimate daughter of uh, a judge, I think, or justice, something like that, and an Aboriginal woman. So she's in between in that. Uh, sense of the word and she's also uh, the character who's most clearly lesbian because she uh, develops a crush on her teacher Greta McCraw who's also most uh, clearly lesbian because there's a there's a background story um, about how she had to flee Scotland because of um, forming the fiercest friendships with the weaker sex and so it's made very clear that, that these two characters are lesbians and they do form a relationship and that in the TV show may play into the, the decision to go missing at Hanging Rock. Um, interestingly, that, that article also argues that numerous of the other characters are queer in some sort of way. Um, Miranda, for example, because she doesn't care for all this heteronormative uh, talk about marriage at all. Uh, because she only, and I think that the article says she only cares about her freedom and horses. Um, <laughs> Sarah Wayborn very clearly has a crush on Miranda, I think, and I think that's in the that's in the book as well. I think she writes love poems to her, and um, oh, we only have nine minutes left on this on this podcast, and I yep. think. Uh, Okay. then it okay. might actually finish because uh well during corona zoom had this this extension and i don't think it has that anymore but anyway just a warning uh, where was i do you think it's going to cut us off 
I think it might. Yeah, but just let's just let's just use these let's last nine okay, minutes. Well, that, that's a very gothic scenario. We don't know if it is or not going to cut us out. And then what is going to happen? Are we going to disappear? Well, just like that. No, <laughs> and, just just and, weird, weird thoughts. Sorry, stay time. tuned, students, to know what happens to us for the. Um, <laughs> I think I have a tie-in between uh, this state of in-betweenness and the queerness uh, of, of this text in, mm. in that frequently throughout the text, we have these kind of meta-textual references that talk about the narrative that's happening uh, or like the extended narratives of other characters. One example is like on 165 where they talk about uh, the kind of future that Tom has uh, as he, like basically what happens after the novel with him. And it basically dismisses his part of the novel by saying like, you know, we aren't going to be visiting this character ever again uh, after this. So uh, these kind of decisions point towards the same kind of uncertainty that's been permeating the novel yeah. because they give us moments of certainty and clarity, but they aren't actually related to the story in a direct way. So we have all these characters who have seemingly queer relationships with one another, but we don't really have any clarity about that either. It never really hammers that down in a, in a clear-cut way, and that really complements, I guess, already the mystery, the narrative we don't really have any any final solution of. So I think mm. that excitement of the final chapter was definitely on point as well because it really thematizes the, the inability to end in this uh, story. And perhaps also... Interestingly, I think it wasn't of, Lindsay's decision to, yeah. to excise that final chapter. It was the editor. Yeah, I believe so, so too. Uh, what is, what, I think that's an interesting case as well, because usually it's the authors who, who make the decisions on the, you know, the creative, uh, the creative aspects. And here it was the editor and it really helped the novel. So kind of, kind of in between as well, sort of. <laughs> uh, in the TV show, Marion is also referring to a relationship with the mathematics teacher somehow in between because they can never really admit that they love each other, but they are also not going to, uh, well, that's the plan. They're not going to leave each other. They're not going to leave the college and eventually they go uh, together uh, to Hanging Rock and stay there, but they can also never express their relationship fully. So in between. <laughs> well, I actually think that in the movie it's less obvious. Um, mm. There is um, this ethereality, if that's a word, um, mm. and this contributes to, let's say, to, to the idea of romantic friendships. So you have the idea of romantic friendship, the, this Victorian concept, which um, I would say is just um, a way of, well, describing queerness, basically, in Victorian times. Um, expressed the way Victorians would have expressed romantic friendships between women. So um, from our perspective nowadays in 2020 or even in, in the end um, the end of uh, the 20th century, uh, mm. you would have understood that um, differently actually, but um, it's still very vague and depending on the audience, it might not become as clear as um, it, it seems to have been made in the, in the miniseries. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's interesting how these different adaptations choose to highlight different things. And it, it makes sense that the more recent adaptation chooses to emphasize the queerness because, of course, that has become much more accepted. And it's certainly interesting to see how the TV show integrates queerness 
so much and not only in a straightforwardly uh, gay or lesbian manner. Was I gone? Yes, yes you, you were. were. Uh, yeah, I just, I went into a hall in space and... Oh. How was it? You turned into a crowd. It was, it was interesting. Did I stayed the there. Hmm? Did you find the girls? I did, but I, I, I can't talk about it, unfortunately. It would, it would really impact their privacy. I'm, I'm sure they did say to say hi. Hmm? I'm sure they did tell you to say hi to everyone. They did, they did, yeah. Uh, awesome. We spent a lovely 50 years together. I have a very subjective question, Tina, if I, if I may just steal a minute here, and that is because you, you elaborated so nicely on the TV series, on, on the adaptation. Um, and now, of course, it, it, it's kind of a, of, a, of a fashion now and a trend to put everything into, into a TV series, to serialize everything. So yes. um, everything is being serialized, so you're going to adapt something. Of course, it's going to be a serialization, right? Yes. Um, there, there, is, there is almost no other option these days. How successful do you find um, that show? I mean, I how, think... how do you like it? I liked it very much. Uh, it's it's definitely very different from the movie in that it's probably more international in production as well. Uh, some of the actors are British. Nat Natalie Dormer, uh, who plays Mrs. Appleyard, a very young Mrs. Appleyard at that. Uh, she's British. But there's also, as I said, um, Marion Quaid, who's portrayed by an Aboriginal actress. Uh, actually, one Catherine that you know from Mystery Road, because I I didn't know that, but she played the daughter of the uh, the main character. Oh, okay, yeah, I do remember her. I do remember the movie Mystery Road, <laughs> and the actors, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there we go. Um, so there's a, a kind of mixture between the locally Australian and the global international trend of making series, I suppose, as well. Yeah. Uh, I do think it works very well. It makes a couple of different choices from movie in that um, it's not as mysterious, strangely enough. It does it does remain vague. It does remain in between. We're never told what happens to the girls. Um, there are certain illusions that point to supernatural explanations, but never make them clear in any, in any way. Um, there's... Uh, when the girls disappear, the clouds turn red. And some reviewers have described hearing uh, an engine noise that might even suggest alien abduction, which is one of the many, many interpretations that have been made about Picnic at Hanging Rock. Maybe it uh, was an Easter egg. Hmm? Maybe it was an Easter egg and they didn't want to have it in there. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Uh, I, did, I didn't personally hear the engine noise, so maybe that's, that's also stuck in between somewhere and uh, who knows, maybe the reviewer who heard it was briefly after that uh, abducted by aliens, but who knows. Thanks very, very much indeed um, for, for your take on, on the TV show. Uh, you know, it's just because the program tells us that we have less than one minute to go before we've been cut off, so I thought we'll just bring this conversation to a close. Um, mm -hmm. And um, oh, I, uh, from my end, will just say thank you for, for the discussion and for filling me in on a couple of interesting things that I didn't know um, and that I'm curious to look up and to um, have a look at. So, and thank you, Catherine, yeah. for joining us again. It's, it's always Absolutely. a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, for special thanks. Us. 
Thank you so much, everyone, all of you, and uh, we'll see you back again soon. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>